but uh, originally our plan last week, uh, at the end of last week, was just to finish the lesson that we uh, were on last week, uh, which was Genesis 8, about the first uh, 17 verses or so. We had done about the first seven verses. Uh, excuse me, Genesis 9. Uh, but as I got looking at it and thinking about it more this week, I thought we would go ahead and finish that and go ahead and, and, and finish the rest of chapter 9 today. So we're going to try to tackle a little bit more than what I originally uh, told you at the end of last week. So uh, hopefully uh, if you do, uh, for those of you who do prepare for the lesson, take time to look it over ahead of time. Hopefully you, hopefully you got the email and noticed that. <laughs> but at uh, uh, any rate, let's pick it up then in uh, chapter 9. We looked, uh, like I said, uh, at the first uh, seven verses or so last week. Uh, and today we want to pick up uh, beginning in verse 8. But before we do that, before we read the passage that we're going to look at today, let's go back and think about the things that we talked about last week. What do you recall from those first seven verses that we talked about last week. That's that caught your attention, didn't it? <laughs> Hal the hunter. <laughs> we're going to start calling you Nimrod. You'll understand that next week when we get to chapter ten. Mighty hunter before the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, the Lord gave uh, gave us meat to eat. Uh, before that time, uh, everybody apparently was uh, vegetarians, or at least that's all the Lord had uh, specified or permitted up to that point. But beginning after the flood, He allows the eating of meat. Why does He do that? Thin out the herd. I think he'd already done a pretty good job of that. <laughs> okay, not a lot of vegetables out there yet. It's going to take some time to grow. Them. What's going on here after the flood? Pardon? <clears throat> not necessarily. Not necessarily, yeah. Okay, okay. It, it all has to do with this whole idea of the dominion of the dominion over the creation. Remember, after the flood, we're basically starting over from scratch. And we remember that in Genesis chapter one, when God created uh, Adam and Eve, uh, there were basically two things that He told them. Uh, and what were those two things? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's the blessing that He puts gives them. Uh, uh, and then He gives them a responsibility, which is to have dominion over all of the creation. Okay. So basically, we have a repetition of that at the beginning of chapter uh, chapter nine, uh, where uh, God now again gives this same blessing of procreation: be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He gives that same blessing uh, to them. Uh, and then, and, and then we have the idea of the dominion over the earth again, and the dominion over the creation. And but, but, but it's changed. It's a little different now than it was before, and it's different in what regard? How is this dominion over the earth different after the flood than it was before the flood? Hmm. 
Okay, they could kill the animals to uh, to eat them. Uh, what else? Okay. What what is it? What does it say there about the what the animals will be? Yeah. How, how will the animals relate to man after the flood? They're going to fear them. Okay. So this element of fear or terror in the in the animals is new. That wasn't there before. Okay. So this all has to do with part of this idea of the dominion. Is is anybody else in this room cool? Are you all? If you're not, if you're comfortable, that's fine. This thing's blowing on me and freezing me out up here. But I, that's the joy of standing right under that thing. <clears throat> but if you're comfortable, that's fine. Um, so, so we now have the dominion of the, the dominion of man over the animals involves this element of terror and involves the element of the animals being given to man to eat. And he's very specific that that all of the all of the created animals are given to man to eat. But then God begins to put some some qualifications on this whole idea. And, and what are the qualifications that he puts on it? Okay, they can't eat with blood in them. And what is God trying to stress in that? What is the point of that? Okay, the, the life is in the blood. And the idea is that although... Creation is given to us for our joy and our pleasure and for our use. We still need to respect and honor that, that, that dynamic or that element of life that is in the creation. And so this emphasis on the value of life comes out. And it comes out much more here, really, than it does even in the, in the beginning of Genesis. And the reason for that is because man now in his sinful condition has learned to have disregard for life. And we've seen all that violence that he talks about there uh, right before the flood that necessitated the flood. So man has become very careless and very cavalier in his attitude towards life. So now, now as God is reiterating this whole idea of man's dominion over the earth and is giving to man animals to eat, uh, which he had not done before, he still wants us to have this very high esteem or high regard uh, for for life, and so he puts this prohibition against eating animals with the blood in them. And then he goes from there. He kind of segues from that. That kind of leads in to his next uh, instructions as far as how society will operate after the flood. And what is that? Okay, the whole idea of capital punishment. And God institutes here. In, in, in Genesis chapter 9, he institutes uh, capital punishment. And capital punishment is to be administered for what? Murder. For murder. So when someone wantonly takes the life of another person, when someone unjustifiably uh, uh, takes the life of another person, the Lord says their life is to be taken. Okay? Why does he do that? Because of the value of life, okay? And we need to understand that, that, that capital punishment as it is instituted by the Lord is instituted because of the value of human life, okay? And the thing we talk, one of the things we talked about last week is oftentimes one of the arguments that's made against capital punishment is human life is too valuable, okay? That human life is, is too valuable for us 
to uh, to implement capital punishment uh, in the punishment for murder. But what God is saying is that it's specifically because of the value of life that we are implementing capital punishment. And the purpose of capital punishment is to imprint upon our minds that tremendous value of human life and the tremendous seriousness uh, of taking a life unjustifiably. And so he wants us to understand that and for us to understand how serious it is for us to take someone else's life. He implements this idea of capital punishment. Okay, And we talked some about that. Okay, Anything else that we talked about last week that you want to mention? Okay. Okay. Human government was before it was conscience. Okay. Okay. Before the fall of innocence. Okay. Okay. So we're now into the third dispensation. The first one, as she says, being innocence uh, before the fall. Then from the fall uh, up until the flood is the dispensation of conscience, when God just uh, God basically administered or governed the world through human conscience, and and with uh, and of course with the dispensation of innocence, we see the failure of man with the dispensation of conscience. We see the failure of man, and so now we move on to the dispensation of human government. Why do we say? that beginning here is the dispensation of human government. What is it about this, these developments here in chapter 9 that clue us in that human government is being instituted here? Okay, okay. But specifically, capital punishment, when he, when he gives to society the right to capital punishment, what is he placing in society's hand? Okay, he's giving them the... Sword. Okay? And we remember from Romans chapter 13, Paul talks about the sword being given to government uh, for, uh, for God's purposes of establishing or, or maintaining right and punishing of wrong and then that sort of thing. So, so we have here the institution of human government uh, and, uh, and the beginning of that particular dispensation. Now, Gary, you've been waving your hand back at me. <laughs> Oh, she made your point for you. Okay. Well, see, if I wait long enough to, to recognize you, somebody else will always get to your point. So, Okay. All right. Okay. Anything else? All right. Let's go on and let's pick it up in verse 8 and read down through the end of the chapter. He says, Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that come out of the ark, even every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you and all flesh that shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh 
that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now, the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both of their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Noah lived 350 years after the flood, so all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Okay? Well, so picking up then in, in verse 8, we're just continuing from the things we were talking about last week. We now have the actual establishment of what we call the Noah Covenant, okay? where God establishes the covenant. And last week we talked about what is it that precipitated this covenant? Pardon? Whose sacrifice? Noah's sacrifice, right. So back at the end of chapter 8, we saw Noah offering a sacrifice to God and it went up to God as a pleasant or a soothing aroma and God in response to, uh, to this soothing aroma that he, that he uh, enjoys from Noah's sacrifice, he is moved in his heart to say, I'm never going to do this again. I'm never going to flood the earth again. Okay? And so he makes this, he purposes in his own heart first that he will not do this. And then he finally enters into this covenant uh, or establishes this covenant that he had promised Noah clear back in chapter 6 that he was going to establish. Okay? Now what do we know about this covenant? How is this covenant different from most covenants that we think of? Okay, it's unilateral. Okay, he says, I myself will establish my covenant. Okay, so this is a unilateral covenant. All the responsibility is on God for this covenant. Okay, and and it's and we see that because in part he doesn't he doesn't lay any stipulation on man. He doesn't put any requirement on man for this covenant to be fulfilled. We see it when he says, I myself, he's stressing that he himself is establishing the covenant. Nobody else uh, is involved in it. And we see it too in that the covenant is established with whom? Whom is the, co- is the covenant with? Noah and his sons and all living things for how long? For all successive generations, okay? So quite clearly, since, since the covenant is not only with Noah and with his sons, but it's with all the, you know, it's with the bugs and the ants and the, and the elephants and the, did you all see that story about that guy going home from church Wednesday night and eating it and ran into an elephant? <laughs> I've heard of people running into deer before, but anyway, the elephants, you know, the God's covenant is with is with all of the creation, so obviously there's there's not there's nothing required 
no moral behavior that's required in order to effectuate or, or to maintain this covenant. So it's a unilateral covenant, and that will become important to us in a minute when we begin to talk about the sign. Uh, so it's a unilateral covenant that God has made. And what is the covenant? No more, no more universal, flood. universal flood. Yeah, no more worldwide flood. There will never again be a worldwide flood to destroy the earth. So God makes this promise, which, which I'm sure, you know, to you and I today, you know, we we probably think about it and we go, well, that's you know, that's kind of neat or that's kind of cool. But think about Noah. <laughs> he just came off this ark, and he's looking at you know what you know what a, what the earth looks like after it's been hit by a flood if you all have been in areas where there's ever been a flood you see the devastation you see what it looks like that's all Noah can see for as far as the eye can see and beyond that that's all he can see and he's just come off this flood and he's come through this horrible year-long experience of God uh, of God just destroying the whole world with a flood so this has got to be really encouraging news to Noah that God says I'm not going to do this again Okay, so it's a unilateral covenant and it's a covenant that says that he will never again destroy the earth with a flood. And then we get into this kind of interesting thing where God establishes or sets a sign of the covenant. Okay, so God makes a sign of the covenant. What is the sign? The sign is the rainbow. You know, we've been hearing about this since we were little crumb crutchers in Sunday school, right, about this rainbow in the sky. But what's really going on here? We need to think about what's going on here. When you have a covenant between two parties and you establish some sign of the covenant, what's the point? What's the reason for the sign? Excuse me? A reminder of what? Okay, of the promises. But you know, if we're not even talking about a covenant, we'll go. we're talking about any covenant. What's it a reminder of? The agreement. The agreement. In other words, everybody's what? Responsibilities. Yeah. The reminder is set there. The sign is set there so that when the parties to the covenant look on it, they go. Oh, yeah, I'm supposed to do thus and so. Okay, so the purpose of the sign is to remind someone of their responsibilities. Okay, now God is establishing a sign of the Noahic covenant, and this sign is in the is the rainbow, right? And the intention of the rainbow then is to remind the parties of their responsibilities, right? So when you look at the rainbow, what are your responsibilities? I would think ours is to praise God. According to the covenant, what are your responsibilities? We don't have any, right? It's a unilateral covenant. Okay. Now I want you to notice something in these verses that you may have never noticed before. That he sets the sign... In the, in the clouds, he says. He sets a sign of the covenant in the clouds. And then he talks about who looks at the sign and who acts based upon seeing the sign. Who looks at the sign in the verses that we've just read this, this morning? God looks at the sign. Doesn't say anything about Noah looking at the sign. Doesn't say anything about Noah seeing the sign. 
It's about God seeing the sign. It's about God looking at the rainbow. Do you ever notice that? It's, it's kind of fascinating. Now, it's not to say that, in, that, that we don't have, get some benefit from looking at the sign. You know, we see the rainbow and we go, oh, that's pretty, and we think about the gold at the end, you know. But, but in reality, I look at the, I, you know, when I see a rainbow, oftentimes I do stop and think about this passage and think about God's promise, and that's really cool. And that's edifying. You know, and I'm sure God is honored by that, that I think about the covenant that he has made with me. But the purpose of the sign was to remind who? God. Okay. Now, let's get a little scientific here for a minute. What does it take to have a rainbow? Pardon? You've got to have moisture. You've got to have rain, right? You've got to have clouds, right? And sun. You've got to have two things to have a rainbow, right? Okay. Now, keep that in mind for a second. Let's back up. Back in, in chapter uh, 8, verse 1, when Noah was out there floating on the ark at the end of the flood, then it says that God did what? God remembered Noah. And we talked about what that meant. What did that mean? Okay, it's not like Noah had slipped his mind, okay? What else does it mean? He acted, okay? Whenever we encounter this idea of God remembering, God remembered Noah, God remembered Rachel, etc., 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 it's not that those people had slipped his mind and, and, and then suddenly he goes, oh yeah, I promised it. It's not that. But when it says God remembered... What it's really saying is that God, having made a promise or obligated Himself in some way in the past, has now begun to act. Okay? Keeping that in mind, now we recall, or now we look at the passage we're looking at now, and and God says He's placed a sign in the heavens, that sign, or in the clouds, and that sign is the bow, and He says, when I look at it, I will what? Remember, I will act. I will act according to the covenant promise that I have made. So in other words, when the rainbow is in the cloud, you and I see it, but God's also seen it, and it's really important that He see it, because when He sees it, He is what? He's remembering He is acting. Okay? So the rainbow itself is evidence that God is acting. Okay? Now, now again, what are the two things you have to have to have a rainbow? You've got to have the clouds and you've got to have clear skies. Right? You've got to have the cloud and you've got to have clear skies. So whenever we see the rainbow, some of the sky is clear. Right? Whenever we see the rainbow, we know that the whole earth is not being rained upon. In other words, the very existence of the rainbow is God keeping His covenant promise never to destroy the whole world again by a flood. Now, thinking about that for a minute, 
What do you have to do to see a rainbow? Okay, you have to look up. Where else do you have to look? <coughs> Pardon? Well, that's kind of looking up, yeah. Looking up, look at the sky. You look, you're looking at the clouds. You never see the rainbow when you're looking at the sun, right? You only see the rainbow when you're looking at the clouds. So it's... When, when the clouds are over there, and here in Oklahoma, that usually means out in the east because that's the way the storms come through. So, so when you look out to the east, you see the clouds, you see the dark clouds out there, the storm has passed, the moisture is still in the sky out there, and the light coming from behind you reflects off of those rain droplets and comes back at you, and you see the rainbow, right? If you turn around and look at the sun, you don't see the rainbow. You only see the rainbow when you're seeing the clouds. And, and as I was reflecting on that, and pardon me if I'm stretching things a little bit here, but as I was reflecting on that uh, last week, I was just thinking, that's really when I need to see the rainbow, isn't it? <laughs> when I'm seeing the clouds. That we all have times in our lives when we've been through a, a really great storm or we're going through a great storm. And we, and we really aren't maybe seeing at this moment the fulfillment of all God's promises to us. We're seeing the clouds. But I think what God wants us to do when we're seeing the clouds is to notice the sign of His covenant. To notice that God has set a sign for us to remind us of the clearness of the sky. And the question is, what is the sign of your covenant? In addition to, as we see, we're all, of course, beneficiaries and recipients of the Noahic covenant, but we're also participants in another covenant. What is that? This is easy, folks. This is... The new covenant, okay? We are participants in the new covenant. What is the sign of the new covenant? Okay, uh, yes, but we have a specific sign God has given us of the new covenant. What is it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Something that's actually a vis visible physical sign that God has given us of the new covenant. Okay, you're getting closer. <laughs> you're going to kick yourself. You're going to kick yourself. Pardon? The bread and the wine. The bread and the wine. The bread and the wine. And, and so really your answers are all wrapped up in that, right? The cross and, and the empty tomb and all that stuff are, are wrapped up in that. But the Lord has given to us the sign of the covenant. The bread and the cup. Communion. And, and, and the Lord instructed us as often as we do this, to do it, what? In remembrance of Him, in remembrance of the action that He has already taken to fulfill the covenant that He has made with us. And so I would suggest to you that when we are in a situation where all we can see is the clouds, God has given to us a sign to look on. And that sign 
is to remind us of his covenant. A covenant in which he alone is the actor. Okay? In which he has made the provision. He has cut a barret. He has cut a covenant on our behalf. And the sacrifice of that covenant that he cut was his own beloved son. And in order that we would never forget that, and no matter how dark our clouds are around us, that we would remember that he has given to us the cup and the bread. So it's not just some simple, simply some little ritual we do because we're Christians. But it's actually a sign that God has given to us that he has cut a barrette with us. And when we do this, Paul says, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Who do you proclaim the Lord's death to? Well, obviously, we, we're proclaiming it to ourselves. We're remembering. We're proclaiming it to those who are around us, which is one of the reasons the Lord Paul is so uh, insistent that Christians be in proper fellowship with one another before they take the bread and cup, that there not be sin between one another because we're proclaiming the Lord's death to one another. And I'm sure because the angels look on and watch and see what we are doing when we are meeting together as a church, and Paul makes that pretty clear too, that that we are proclaiming the Lord's death to the angels. But I think also, when we take the cup and the wine, we're, remembering, we're, re, we're reminding the Lord. We're saying, Lord, remember your covenant. So when we are surrounded by clouds and we cannot see the clear skies, and we have to ask ourselves, or we ask ourselves, you know, does God care? Does God love me? Does God... Is God going to work this thing out for me. We remember his sacrifice and we remember that he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him also freely give us all things? And so we remember if he gave me a son, whatever the circumstances I find myself in, if He has given His Son for me, then I have nothing to fear in the circumstances that I am in. <clears throat> so, so God then gives this sign of the covenant. And this all happens apparently immediately after exiting the ark. Okay, He comes out of the ark, He offers a sacrifice, and God responds to the sacrifice, and God establishes His covenant. Okay, now we hit the fast forward button and we zip forward a number of years. Okay, so we pick up the story then in verse eight or verse 18, where he reminds us again of Noah's sons who came out of the ark. And he tells us the three sons of Noah who are whom? Who are whom? Can I say that? (laughs) Who are the three sons of Noah? Okay. And when we get to chapter 10 next week, we're going to go into the descendants in detail of each one of these three guys. Okay. But in this verse, in verse 18, he mentions to us the three sons of Noah and somebody else. Canaan. Who is Canaan? The son of Ham. Okay. Now, why does he do that? He says the sons of Noah are Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham's son, Ham is the father of Canaan. 
And you'll notice he says it again later. He's stressing that Canaan is the son or the descendant of Ham. Okay. And then he and then he tells us what Noah did after he came out of the ark. What kind of an occupation did he take up? He took up farming. Why didn't he become a lawyer? There's nobody to there's nobody to do there was nobody to do that with, right? Okay. He didn't know how to be a doctor. He couldn't be a lawyer, you know. Uh, and uh, he had a big ark there. I don't know. He, I guess he could have taken up carpentry, taken that ark apart and building something. But he, be, he took up farming. And he planted what? He planted a vineyard. Now, I'm assuming that's not all he planted. <laughs> but he planted a vineyard. And from that vineyard, he grew the grapes and he made what? Wine. And what did he do with the wine? He drank it. Okay. Now, so far, so good. Okay. The scriptures are clear. The scriptures teach quite explicitly that God gave the fruit of the wine for man's blessing, and etc. And He gave wine for man's blessing, etc., etc. The scriptures are very clear on that. But we run into a problem here that Noah gets drunk, and he gets drunk, and while he's drunk, he does what? Pardon? He disrobes where? In his tent. Okay, so he's he has he has uncovered himself. So he's lying there, presumably lying there, since he's plowed out under his out of his mind. He's lying there, and of course he's completely undressed. Okay. Now, why did Noah get drunk? Trick question. Because he could. <laughs> what did you say, Gary? Oh, you didn't say anything? Quality testing. <laughs> Quality control. Quality control. We don't know, do we? We don't know why he got drunk. You know, He's enjoying the fruits of his labor and he's over... You know. So we don't know what... You know, by this time, we actually know that, that some years have passed because by now, by now Canaan has... Uh, excuse me, Ham has several sons. Canaan is not his oldest, he's his youngest. Okay, apparently is his youngest son. So he has several sons. And 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 I understand from the from the way the story flows, I understand that Canaan, Canaan is by now an adult. Okay. So we are now a number of years removed from the flood. Okay. So, you know, this is certainly not Noah's first experience with wine. I'm sure they had wine before the flood, and it was wine after the flood. And, uh, and, and, and he gets drunk. I don't think it's his first experience with wine. It's not like he doesn't know what it's going to do. Okay? I, haven't, I haven't found any commentator that sees anything other than a failure of character here in Noah, that Noah sinned. Okay? Now, let's think about Noah for a minute. Who is this guy? Noah, we were introduced to him there at the end of chapter 5 and first part of chapter 6 and it says Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In chapter 6 it says Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless in his generation. It says Noah walked with God. In Hebrews chapter 11 we see that Noah was a man of faith. In Second Peter chapter 2 we see Noah was a preacher of righteousness. This guy is a good guy, folks. He's a really good guy. He's a godly man. He's a man of faith. And he's old by now. He's probably approaching 700 years old, maybe older. Okay, he's been around. He's been around the block. And he's and and he's 
And he's walked with God all these years and he's seen marvelous deliverance at the hand of God. But nobody is invulnerable to sin. And it doesn't matter how righteous you've been and how godly you've been and how much you've walked with God, you have to be vigilant every moment of every day or you'll fall into sin. We don't know why why Noah got drunk, okay? Maybe he was depressed. Maybe there was something that really discouraged him. And he just needed a picker-upper. Maybe he was just having a party and got out of control. We, we really have no idea why he got drunk, but we do know that it was wrong for him to do so. It was a lack of self-control. And, and so Noah, he gets drunk, and when we get drunk, what happens? Why does God prohibit us from getting drunk? Why does he tell us not to do it? Because you lose control, because you lose your discernment. He says, so he says, don't be drunk with the wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay? The idea is that when, when we drink too much, when we get drunk, we're really not operating in self-control, which is one of the fruits of the Spirit, incidentally, Galatians chapter 5. Okay? And Noah has gotten drunk and he has become indiscreet and immodest. Now, admittedly not wantonly immodest. He's not walking around, you know, in public in, in, in the nude, okay? He's in his tent, but he has still been sufficiently indiscreet that it is possible for someone who shouldn't see him naked to see him naked, okay? And so he's lying there and he's naked and he's plowed out of his mind. He really doesn't know what's going on. And Ham comes in and he says, it just says, he, Ham came in and saw his father naked and went out and told his brothers, well, the writer of, of, of uh, Genesis here, Moses, is being very delicate in how he's handling this. Okay? He really doesn't tell us much about what's going on. Okay? It's just very straightforward. He went in, he saw his dad uh, uncovered, and then went out and told his brothers. Okay? And because the writer of Genesis is being so discreet here, people have tended to read a lot into this. So... That, so uh, Jewish, histor- Jewish commentators from way back and, and even Christian commentators have tended to read a lot into this and, and you know, well, what, what did he really do when he was in there? Well, we, it just says he saw him. That's all it says. But it is clear that it was not an inadvertent glance because the word saw there has the idea of, of looking intently. Okay, so it is not simply that he walked in and he saw his dad naked. Ooh, and he walked out. Okay, but he walked in and he saw his father naked, and he contemplated it. He studied it. He thought about it. Okay, now it starts to get pretty ugly, doesn't it? <laughs> now we begin to see whether or not you attach anything else that he might have done. And I don't I honestly don't think he did anything else. But but even without attaching anything else to it, it becomes quite clear here a serious character flaw in Ham. That Ham is so possessed by his sensuality that he cannot control himself. 
or will not control himself. And he indulges in this purient voyeurism of delighting in looking at his own father disrobed. Okay. How long he did it, we don't know. But at some point, he decides he wants to share this with others. So he goes outside of the tent and he tells his brothers. Okay. Now, the implication of what, from the story of what's going on here is that, is that when he goes out to tell his brothers, he's not going out to tell his brothers in order to recruit their help in covering his father's shame. He could have done that himself. He was there long enough. He looked enough. He could have simply taken something and covered his father. But of course he didn't. He left his father in that condition and he went out and told the brothers. Okay? Now he's doing one of two things, if not both. One is he's a gossip. He has seen someone else's failure and someone else's shame. And instead of covering or hiding that shame, he goes out and reports it. He goes out and tells others. And when Ham acts as a gossip and goes out and tells his brothers, as he's gossiping to his brothers about his father's shame, we learn far more about the gossip than we do the one gossiped about, don't we? We really don't know much about what was going on in Noah's life. We just simply know there was a time in a a godly man's life when he was for a period of time indiscreet and unwise and foolish and drank some wine and got drunk and uncovered himself in his tent. But we discover a whole lot more about Ham. We discover in Ham's gossip that Ham himself is a man possessed by sensuality. A man who has so little regard for his own father that he would stand there and feed his purient appetites rather than cover his father's shame. And and that's one of the things we learn when we encounter a gossip. And that's one of the things we reveal when we ourselves are gossips. Is that we show a lot more about ourselves than we do about the person we're talking about. Are you a gossip? I'll be honest with you. I like to gossip. I try not to. But it's very tempting, isn't it? It's very tempting when you see somebody else stumble and fall, somebody else's shame. It's really so easy to go tell somebody else about it. Don't do that. Because when you do that, when you gossip about somebody else, you are disclosing your own character. You're disclosing how much you love sin. How much you thrive on it. And the flaws in your own character. Okay. Well, so... So, at the best, he's a gossip. At worst, it appears, and I think this is what's going on, he's actually trying to recruit his brothers. He's trying to get his brothers to get in on this party. Tell hey, Dad's lying and they're naked. Come on in and look at him. Okay. That seems to be the idea that the translators get from the passage because you'll notice when he talks about the response of Shem and Japheth, the translators put the word but there. In other words, in contrast to what 
Ham was trying to do, his brothers acted in an opposing way, in an opposite way. Okay? So Ham's intention there, I think, was not only to delight in the sin of his father and to feed off the sin of his father, but to recruit his brothers in that also. Okay. Well, before we go on, I just want to, I, I want to stop and, and point out for you a minute that, that Noah, has, Noah has sinned here. Noah has stumbled. Noah has failed. In my judgment, it's not a particularly dramatic failure in the whole scheme of things. I mean, he didn't kill somebody. And like I say, he didn't run out in the streets naked. And, you know, it, it was all in the privacy of his own tent. Man, did it have consequences. Had consequences on his son, had consequences on his grandson, and had consequences on generations to come. And we see in we see in this brief, and I believe it was brief failure in the life of Noah, we see that principle of the sins of the fathers being visited upon the children to the third and fourth generation. And it makes me really seriously want to think about how do I live my life? Because I have children. Someday I may even have grandchildren. Many of you already do. And our sin, even though it seems so minor and insignificant to us, can have a devastating impact. It's not that... The, it's not that it's not that Ham was innocent. His life was filled with sensuality. His mind was filled with sensuality. But Noah's sin gave it an opportunity to express itself and then have its consequences. And so my children, if, if, if there is some sin in my life that, that triggers some sin in their life, they're not, they're not off scot-free because of my sin. And you're not off scot-free because of your parents' sin. Okay? But, but a parent's sin has effects on the kid, on the child. And it opens a door of opportunity for that latent sinful nature in them to act out. And that's what happens with Ham. Noah, by his sin, gives Ham an opportunity to act out his sensuality. And he does. Okay. Well, so then... Shem and Japheth, having heard what they've heard from Ham, rather than being sucked in to the sin that Ham has engaged in, this purient voyeurism, instead of getting sucked into that and taking pleasure in their father's failure and their father's shame, they take a garment, they walk in backwards, they're very careful not to look at him, and they cover his nakedness. Does that sound like anything we've heard before? Does that bring anything to your mind? When before have we seen nakedness the Garden of Eden? Shem and Japheth are acting like God. Because God, when He sees the nakedness of Adam and Eve in their shame, of course there was no shame before the fall, but after their fall, they were naked and they were ashamed. And what does God do? He covers their 
shame. That's the character of God. That's why later in the New Testament we discover that love covers a multitude of sins. Instead of being gossips, instead of taking the opportunity when we see somebody else sin to talk about that sin, if we were to live out the character of God as Shem and Japheth do in this case, what would we do? We would be ones who would be inclined to cover somebody's shame, not to talk about it. Now, obviously, there's a time and there's a place under the right circumstances and and, and, and I think you would give me at least enough credit to recognize that and knowledge. There, are, there is a time and there is a place to go to a brother to correct him or a sister to correct her and if she doesn't repent or whatever to go to a third party. There is a time to talk to somebody else. But in general, we ought to have that disposition of covering someone's shame. Now, what is intriguing to me is that Ham named his son Canaan. And the name Canaan means the submissive one. So when, when this little baby is born, Ham calls him the submissive one. But this is a guy who doesn't have enough respect and honor for his own father to cover his father's shame. And so, so what you see in Ham, what's revealed in Ham in this passage, is a guy who's not only, whose life is not only dominated and controlled by his sensuality, but a guy who is a hypocrite. He wants his son to be submissive to him, but he refuses to honor his father. How many times have we seen that around us? Oftentimes, it's the ones who are the most tyrannical who are the least willing to be submissive themselves. The ones, the parents who are the most tyrannical over their children are oftentimes the parents who have the least respect and honor for their own parents. And that's what we have in him. Well, so Noah wakes up from his drunken stupor. He, he, he gets sobered up. And then right after he gets sobered up, he starts prophesying. <laughs> you know, this is the character of a man of God. As he repents, he gets right with God. And then God fills him with the Spirit and enables him to prophesy. And prophesy, and we have this passage, this, this curse and this blessing. And it is a prophecy. And I want to stress that it is descriptive, not prescriptive. In other words, Noah isn't saying, isn't making things this way by saying it. He's saying... I see the future and I see this is the way it's going to be. He's describing the future. He's not prescribing the future. And in the, under the unction of the Holy Spirit, he utters this prophecy regarding the future generations. This is not, this is not something he's saying specifically about Canaan or about Ham or about Shem or about Japheth, but he's talking about their successive generations. Another illustration of this principle would be uh, when uh, Jacob and Esau, the twins, are born. And God says regarding those twins when they were born, He says, the older will serve the younger. Two babies come out of the womb. He says, the older will serve the younger. 
But when we study the history, and we will study it as we go through Genesis, we will discover that Esau never served Jacob. If anything, it was the other way around. Esau never served Jacob. Clearly, that was a prophesy not, prophecy not specifically about Esau and Jacob, but it was a prophecy about their descendants. Okay? Well, it's the same thing here. This is not a prophecy about Ham or about Canaan or about Shem or about Japheth. It's a prophecy about their descendants. And, God, and Noah sees the tendency in, in Ham and he sees the tendency in Ham's son, Canaan, his grandson, and he says, I can see the future and I can see what's going to happen. And Canaan will become a slave, a slave of slaves to his brothers. Okay? And, 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 and I say it's a character issue, not an ethnic issue. In other words, he's not, he's not cursing the tribe of Canaan because they are the tribe of Canaan or the tribe of Ham because they are the tribe of Ham. He's cursing them because he sees the character that's coming. And sure enough, by the time Genesis is written, the Canaanites have gone overboard in their sensuality. And you'll see a description of that in Leviticus chapter 18 as God lists all the things the children of Israel are not to do sexually. Okay? Uh, bestiality, incest, rape, you know, all the things that God lists there uh, uh, in Leviticus 18. Adultery, fornication, all those things He lists. And then He says, of all these things, the people in the land where you are going, they do all this stuff. And so that is the kind of a place that they, the children of Israel are going to. And God is, through Moses, is telling them here in Genesis that, that the judgment that they are going to execute at the hand of God on the Canaanites as they move into the promised land is a prophecy, is the fulfillment of a prophecy issued many, many, many hundreds of years previously by their father Noah. Okay. And then, he, and then he utters his blessing to Shem. And you'll notice the blessing to Shem is really not a blessing of Shem, but it's a blessing of Shem's God. Do you see that? Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Okay. It's, a, it's really what Noah is doing is he's looking at Shem and he's realizing, wow, Shem walks with my God and he blesses the Lord. He blesses God. Because he sees that Shem is a worshiper of Jehovah. The Lord, Jehovah, is Shem's God. Okay? And, and so he's, he's filled with this gratitude towards God and he blesses the Lord because he knows that Shem is the seed of the woman. Shem is the one, is the righteous line. And he sees that because he sees that he is a worshiper of of Jehovah, the covenant God. And then he says concerning Japheth, he says that he will be enlarged and he says he will dwell in the tents of Shem. Well, that idea of dwelling in the tents of Shem is the idea if you're going to dwell in somebody's tents, you're participating in their largesse, right? You're participating in their wealth. You're participating in their prosperity and their goodness, okay? And if, in fact, Shem represents the righteous line and the one through whom the seed will come who will crush the serpent's head, 
If Shem represents that, then he's saying of Japheth that Japheth will dwell in his tents. It's the gospel, folks. It's the gospel. It's the idea that of all these great nations, and you see it actually fulfilled in detail in Isaiah chapter 66, where he lists many of the descendants of Shem, and he talks about them specifically being brought to God in Israel, coming to Israel, and becoming priests in Israel. Isaiah chapter 66. The idea is that of all these nations of the earth, we are invited and we are welcome to dwell in the tents of the one who is the seed of the righteous. We are welcome to participate in that great blessing which will be upon, uh, upon Shem and ultimately upon Abraham and upon the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, etc. And then ultimately, we, the Gentile nations, are invited to come in and to dwell in the tents of Shem. Okay, well, we're done next week. We'll pick up the table of nations in chapter 10.